Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 52. I'm your host, Dill, and this week we have a nice little sit-down with bassist Eva Gardner. Eva's professional career began shortly after graduating UCLA with honors when she toured and recorded as the original bassist in the Mars Volta. Since then, she's played with the likes of Gwen Stefani, Moby, Cher, and Baruch Salt. I met up with Eva while on tour with Pink, and our conversation about her well-known father, British bassist Kim Gardner, ethnomusicology, and being the first female to have a signature Fender bass went a little something like this. I think right off the bat, I think, you know, what most people might already know about you is you kind of come from a little bit of rock royalty, with your dad being mm-hmm. Kim Gardner and mm-hmm. playing with Ron Wood. And, did he play with Rod Stewart in one of his early, like, yeah, pre-Faces bands? he was in, an er, like, an early version of the Faces mm-hmm. called Quiet Melon. It was uh, Kenny Jones, Ian McLagan, Ron wow. Wood, um, uh, Ron Wood, Art Wood, Ron's brother, Rod Stewart. Um so he was in a yeah quiet melon they were called. That's so funny. So he was part of that whole part of that whole gang. And he was quite prolific in his lifetime. I mean, I I, I read somewhere about you know twenty seven albums. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. being part of yeah. part of a band. Was he a session musician also, or always playing with his buddies? Or? He did both. I mean, he started out in the band setting um, in the Birds with uh, with Ron Wood in their first band together when they were fifteen, and uh, they lived in the same neighborhood. They lived down the street from each other. So it was proximity and, and um, you know, also whoever had gear at the time, I think, just got together and, and started playing. And um, they were also with um, in the same clan as the, the Who back then. They played, they played shows together, so he was really close with, with all those guys. Um, and uh, and Whistle, Mooney, as Dad calls him. What town is this? Um, Dad grew up in a town called West Drayton. Okay. It's in, um, it's in West London, um, not far from Heathrow. Okay. And uh, I actually remember as a kid, when I'd visit my grandparents there, we'd always make a stopover at Ron Wood's mom's house, Biz Wood, and, and that was part of our Funny. part of our time there. Yeah. My brother-in-law's dad is—he grew up in that area too, because he mentioned the story about he got in a fight as a kid with—I forget if it's either Roger Daltrey or uh, Pete Townsend—but <laughs> no. I'll, I'll have to follow up with him to see if he recognizes any of the names. Yeah. When you came along, where was he in his career? He had. He was still. Um, he was still playing in bands. He was when I came along. He was also doing session stuff, but he was playing in a, um, with Billy Burnett. Okay. Um, Ian Wallace was in that band, drummer Ian, and uh, so he was still touring. He was still playing, and uh, it wasn't until my mom was pregnant with my sisters when I was about three and a half that he shifted gears and decided to open up the Can Fiddle. Okay. When was that? That was in 1982. Yeah. So you grew up with that your whole life. That was, uh, I guess, I guess peeling back again to the to the question of, of rock and So did you grow up in a primarily like middle class, or I know back in the day there was a lot more money to be made as a musician in the seventies, and the music seems a lot different. What type of upbringing would you classify your? Um, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say middle class for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a British pub, um, so it was it was the restaurant business meets rock and roll okay. when I grew up and, and uh, the pub became or I guess started as a place for dad to entertain all of his friends whenever anyone was in town um, they'd come through I think dad uh, actually sponsored Rod Stewart's soccer team <laughs> okay. 
So it was part of the. So they had the name on the back of the jersey. Yeah, they had the the whole, the, the whole thing. They had a they had a, a shelf of trophies up in the up in the bar um, from the soccer team, and uh, it was just a it's it was a community hang. You know, I mean, pub stands for public house, and that's really what it was. Um, and so. So you partner with other friends or how just they, family? Yeah, just my parents. And yeah, did they, you have experience from that prior to? Nope, <laughs> not at all. It just kind of. The experience most of us have is we all we like all like to play now and then. Yeah, well, that was one of the things too. He did originally start up with a couple of family friends, but that um, didn't last very long, and my parents um, bought them out. But it started out, I think, partially as dad being English. He his excuse was, "Well, there's no place to get a decent pint of beer in Hollywood," <laughs> so that was one reason. And another one was mom was always like, "Get the party out of the living room," kind of a thing. Right. Um, and uh, and also just um, I think an alternate way to generate income. I think he spent so much time on the road, and um, as we all know, music, uh, the music business fluctuates and income fluctuates, and um, I definitely think that was a part of it as well. Right. So is it safe to say you grew up, did a lot of people, were a lot of people in and out? I know there's, you know, a story that you've told before that it's, um, who was it, Andy Johns came by with a bass. Yeah, yeah. Andy was a fixture. Um, Uncle Andy as I called him, and okay. Dad and him were, were best friends. They'd worked together, I think, uh, in the 60s when Dad was in the creation. I think that they crossed paths and worked together then, so he knew, they knew each other from, from back then. And um, I was just begging Dad to teach me how to play, get it started, and he just was very hesitant about it. He, he resisted the idea. Why so? Um, I don't really know. I have a couple of theories. Um, I mean, as a parent myself, I know that kids go through quick phases. The right. minute you put the money down, they're over it to the yeah. next thing. So That could definitely be I a part of that's it. That's one of them. But that happened to all my friends. All my friends were wanted a guitar for Christmas, and they all got the guitar for Christmas, and within a year, the guitar was in a pawn shop. <laughs> so uh, that could have definitely been part of it. I had to prove it. Um, it could have been him knowing that the business was difficult. I mean, who knows? But um, but looking back now, I'm grateful that he that I was told no, because it made me work for it. And right. it made me really choose it and make a decision that that's what I wanted. And when I was told no, I could have been like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll be an astronomer like I wanted to. Right. You know, I wanted to, to study space when I was a kid. So instead of falling back on one of those things, I was like, wait a minute. I don't like this being told no thing. No, I want to do this. This is what, this is what I want. And I, I really had to work for it. And uh, Andy I probably overheard me or knew that I was buzzing around talking about bass for a long time, and, and uh, one day, yeah, he came knocking on the door with, with a bass and a big nose amp, and Dad thought that Andy was bringing him over his really cool EBO, to ch- Gibson EBO, to check out, and in fact, he was brought it over to, to give me my first bass lesson. Oh, funny. Yeah. Did he leave, or did they leave that with you, too? Was he that did, yeah. Was that to practice on? Yeah, he because Dad wouldn't let me touch any of his basses. Like, all of that was just off-limits. Did he have a good collection? Dad, oh yeah, he, we had a he had a uh, he had a studio in the house, and he had all of his spaces from the '60s, um, really cool old amps, like really amazing stuff. Um, Jeff Beck wanted to buy one of his his guitars from him, so he had really really he said no, <laughs> um, and I still have that guitar, but um, the Gibson 175, 64. But uh, it's gonna be a question later in the interview that might come back. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean he had amazing stuff, and I think that. Um, you know, this having his little kids' grimy hands all over the 
year. I think he wasn't really into that idea. But Andy did leave that base with me and the Pig Nose Amp. And um, I just, there was no turning back. How old are you at this time? I was about, I must have been about 13-ish, okay. something like that. Andy had just finished working on a Van Halen record, the live record. So whenever that came out, it was around that time. Because actually he put on that record, he put on that album that he had just produced and put on the Kinks, their version of He Really Got Me. That's funny. And so my the first song I ever learned how to play on bass was Van Halen doing a Kinks song. That's funny because I, I read that it was just You Really Got Me. I immediately concluded it was the Kinks. Yeah, you, know, Before, just, you would, you would think that, Giants. right? <laughs> yeah, but then, yeah, Andy being Andy, he brought over the new re- this record that he just finished. So, uh, yeah, and then that was, that was kind of it. Did your musical tastes sync up with your dad all your life? Or were there times or um, I was really into I mean dad Jimmy Jan with Jimi Hendrix like he he was knew all those guys so uh, I mean we knew Mitch Mitchell Mitch would come over and he'd come to the pub so those being family friends I was into their music because I um, had that association with them and I was also like I was my dad's biggest fan right mm-hmm. so I listened to I loved his music I loved the creation I listened to the birds I listened to um who all that all all the stuff that those guys um, were doing, um, but I also was into my own thing, right? I was listening to whatever was on uh, the local radio station in LA, K Rock, in the early '90s. So that was right. grunge stuff. So I was like the biggest Nirvana head, um, which my dad thought was racket, of course. But that's part of being a teenager, right? It's like your parents think what you're into is it's awful. funny though. I felt that, I felt that grunge came along kind of post glam metal mm-hmm. LA but and it was kind of a throwback to the 70s kind of arena vibe so I'm funny it's funny that your dad was kind of uh, you know nah oh god I hated it I remember him I think I was really into like I was really into a Smashing Pumpkins song or something and, and I was like dad will you teach me how to play this song and he's like oh that piece of shit kind of a thing just really like you know just, yeah, just yeah. being a dad and really um, and then I look back now I'm like yeah I guess he was set in his ways and he came from a time where it was just a different era in music sometimes you resist change I don't know or yeah. you or you resist what the kids are listening to and vice versa the kids are like ah you're so square dad <laughs> so there's a little bit of push and pull there as well so what became like your next stepping stone with music was it just a uh, like school bands or I know you've gotten to the high school performing arts that was called so yeah was yeah the, uh, School of Arts, LA County School of Arts? Well, before that, I was in an all-girl Catholic school Ooh. for ninth and 10th grade. So oh, when I first started playing bass, I uh, I was in, like, ninth grade, and there were these three juniors, you know, the older kids that came came over and said, hey, we're looking for, we have a band, we're looking for a bass player. All girls, of course, because we were in an all-girl school. So I joined that band. We were called Entropy, and um, they were super into U2, so we did a lot of U2 covers, and I was at the point... At one point, I was like, oh, if we do another U2 song, we have to do a Nirvana song. That was, like, my deal with them. Um, but then that's also when I started writing music. Okay. And so I started, me and the drummer would get together and write songs. So that's where I just really started to explore the creative side. And uh, it got to a point where I could only go so far um, at that school. And I, and I had some friends that went to the L.A. County High School for the Arts. It was the arts high school. And I wanted to really take this music thing seriously. So I, um, and take it further than dad did. You know, dad never went to school. And I auditioned for the arts high school, and I didn't get in. 
Mm, what and, happened there? Well, my approach at the time was, well, yeah, they asked me questions at the audition. was like, are you learning how to read music? And I, my answer was no. Um, and the piece that I played was just some super weird abstract, wild. My dad was a very, um, uh, very like esoteric kind of a guy right. and very deep and pretty far out. So he helped me create this piece um, called the Quantum Forest or something like that. And which was a, a brilliant piece, but when you're auditioning for a school in a scholastic setting. Um, I think that's not really what they wanted to hear. I especially didn't want to hear that I said no and about music. Yeah, and so it was at that point. My attitude at the time was like, well, Dad never learned how to read music. Jimi Hendrix didn't know how to read music. I, I want to be in the music and be passionate about it and play by ear and feel it. And when I didn't get into the school, something clicked. And I was like, oh, okay, so if I want to learn the rules... I have to, uh, if I want to break the rules, I have to learn the rules first. And if this is something I want to do, I have to play the game. So uh, my parents got me a teacher and I started learning the rules. And I tried out again. Again, I was like, I don't want to be told no. This no thing doesn't feel good. And that also made me realize that at that point that that's what I really wanted. Is that a semester later or is that an entire like, year later? This was actually pretty pretty soon after. Okay. It was within, I think it was within a, a year because um, I was going into my junior year, and I think it was pretty quick. And, and thinking back when you gave that answer about not reading music, could you sense the room kind of, <laughs> the air leaving it at all? Or? Yeah, well, kind of, because I felt like so many people that I knew didn't have that, that were successful and didn't have any of but that. But not necessarily in the school. No, not necessarily in the school. No, I kind of had, uh, you know, real punk rock attitude, uh, sort of vibe, kind of very, right. very, re kind of rebellious in that in that respect. But that's when that clicked, right? Like I wasn't that surprised, I guess, when I got that little tiny letter in the mail that said I hadn't been accepted. But again, it was at that point being told no. What was, was your dad's reaction? I, I think that they. What do they know? What's that? And what do they know? I think, I think, yeah. I mean, I think that they, my parents were very supportive of me no matter what I wanted to do. If I said, ah, screw it, I don't, whatever, I'll just go back to astronomy. The, I had to fall back <laughs> on astronomy, yeah. Um, but I made the decision to, to keep going. So my parents got me a teacher, and I started learning how to read music. And I, the, the piece that I prepared for my following audition was like a Bach meets Boogie Woogie. And that was exactly what they wanted to hear. The answer yes was exactly what they wanted to hear when they asked me if I was reading music and he put through up a couple of notes on the staff on the board and I was like that's a G that's a D and sure enough I got in so that's I'm sorry that's junior year that's going to junior year okay, yeah. so you're there two years I was there prior two years. To, and yeah. then you went to UCLA mm -hmm. full degree oh you got it you graduated with honors I did graduate right? with honors yeah well, um, well, with a degree in ethnomusicology and I assume that's like world worldly music or like knowing yeah, it's a study of world music and culture, so it's a cross between musicology and anthropology, and how music correlates to culture and, and vice versa. Oh, wow, that's cool. How music reflects culture and, and your environment. It's, it's fascinating. Do you think you could use that without being a musician? Yes. In terms of teaching or, you know? Yes, for sure. It's actually, it's actually um, can be very much a, a, a book major, right? A lot of people that do ethnomusicology go on to, to teach, and it's a, it's a, it can be a scholastic Major. 
so yeah, I mean, it's not really like the most applied uh, thing out there, I think, as far as music goes. Now, what was your college experience like? I mean, you weren't in the sororities, but were you doing the parties and the, I mean, you, it, it's funny because my perception is like, if you're a musician, it's like, oh, you go to school and you just, that's all you do is play music, but you, you probably had to take, if you're at UCLA, you got to take your English and your core courses and then you find your, your major and then you zero in after a couple of years, that's... Yeah, but I went in knowing what I wanted to do with my major. I went in, actually quite a few of us from, from our high school, from um, the arts high school, went to UCLA to, to do ethnomusicology. So I already had a built-in gang there, uh, a bunch of kids that I already knew from high school. And there were only 60 of us in the undergrad program there. So it was already a built-in um, built hang for us. And my college experience, I think, was probably not your quintessential one because I... I lived in the dorms, but I still lived in L.A., right. so on weekends I went home and played gigs with my band. I, my band, a couple of my bandmates were in college with me, so, um, and lived on the dorms too, so um, I had a kind of an insular experience. I didn't have to go hang out at the Fireside Lounge on, on Friday nights. I didn't, I can say, when I went through my whole college career, I've never been to, to a... Kegger. To a kegger, no, <laughs> or I think I might have gone to one, and it was... Have you ever played one? No. That's funny. No, like like my bands, we were just club bands. We were playing in clubs. Bands. We were playing in all over Hollywood, Highland Park. We what kind of what kind of style were you in town? Um, the band I was in in college was um, our singer was from Mexico, so most of the lyrics were in Spanish. It was like a we had a sax player. Um, it was kind of a rock, jazz rock. Our sax player sounded a lot like Coleman Hawkins, like his his vibe and his tone. So it was kind of a jazz rock meets broken espanol kind of scenario it's kind of eclectic were yeah. you writing originals also yes at the time? yeah it was all original music a lot of a lot of space out jammy kind of jazzy rock prog now you're, <laughs> yourself are you writing are you trying to write melodies and lyrics too are you trying to be the full song songwriter in that setting in that band uh, or in both, general in both in that band and in general yeah I mean at that it, time at that time, in, in the band setting, it was it was very much collaborative because we're all um, we're all in, have input, right. um, and so it was a collaborative effort. But I was always writing songs on on guitar on my bedroom floor since I was like fourteen. So um, I mean, I remember bringing a song for that first band, Entropy. I, I ripped a song on, with the guitar on my bedroom floor, sure enough, and it was of course very depressing, and <laughs> and uh, took it to the girls and. They said that that song was too depressing for them, so they changed some of the lyrics and bumped it up a couple notches. And do you, have, do you still have this stuff? Somewhere? I sure do. Like, uh, I yeah, published I sure do. <laughs> it was called Vegetable. <laughs> exactly. Like, that you were a vegetable, like, like feeling like a, feeling, feeling like a vegetable. Dead inside. Yeah, exactly. Like, teen, 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 teenage years are tough. Teen angst, you know. <laughs> yeah. Especially, especially when grunge is like. Oh God, yeah. I mean, I was listening like Nirvana twenty four seven for like two years, so that they were seeping into my pores. Yeah. Now, are you? You have two younger sisters. Mm -hmm. Are they twins? They are. Oh, okay. Are either of them in music? My sisters are musical, um, but they did not take the path that I did. They could have, and um, when they were in high school, they did play with the idea of trying out for the arts high school, but they chose a different path. Okay. Yeah, they they are still musical. They'll still sing and. Did you ever play so. together as kids? We did, yeah. We we there were a few times where I'd get on the drums, one would play guitar, one would play bass. 
they would sing. I'm so envious that you had this whole, you know, setup in your in your house. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And then Andy's kids, we grew up with Andy Johns' kids also. Evan Evan Johns is an amazing drummer, so he was the first drummer that I ever played with. And if we weren't at our house jamming, we were at their house jamming. That's great. Yeah. God, what a blast. Yeah, it was great. So what happens after college? Is, is immediately after college, does uh, the Mars Volta happen? Yeah, I met those guys while I was in college, actually, while okay. I was at school. So I was finishing up there and playing in the band. And was there, like I said, you, you graduated with honors. Was there any temptations to get out of college early and get going? I actually had offers, tour offers, while I was in school. And, of course, all I wanted to do was tour. That was my, my goal. But for some reason, I just really felt like I wanted to finish school. Like I, I was the first person to finish college in my, in my family, and I just had this goal, and I wanted, to, I wanted to complete it. And was that vision of touring, what was that vision of touring for you? Just getting in a van with a, with a band and touring the United States, or was it the whole hog? You want to go bus and Europe and the world, or like baby steps, or all in? <laughs> I feel like I just wanted to get on the road, and at the time, van and states, great. Amazing. I mean, my mind, I think, hadn't even graduated to any of the other stuff because I just was so excited to hit the road with whatever that looked like. Right. And being in such a, a music scene, you must have known people that are doing it, coming back and like, oh, man, it was great. You know? yeah. So it's kind of been your ear the whole time. Yeah, I had a lot of friends that were going on tour, van tour with a trailer around the States and having a blast. And, and um, it, it looked like an amazing time, and I couldn't wait to do it myself. So you did do it with the Mars Volta? Mm-hmm. That was your first? That was my first, yeah. As, fin- as soon as I finished college and I didn't have to be anywhere in the fall, I hit the road with them. And your parents at this time were fully, I mean, you're going to music school, you're getting a degree, you're doing well, so they're have at it. Yeah, they were all about it. My mom was super supportive, um, and uh, yeah, dad was excited for me too. Okay, and I know I think time on unfortunately your dad passed early on in that experience or? yeah dad was he was sick my last two years of college he he had cancer okay. so he struggled with that um for two years and then finally he um was on his deathbed the day like right as i was leaving for my first tour oh my God. and i i told him i said i'll stay here and and uh you know be with the family and he said all you're gonna do is sit here and cry get out there and do what i taught you to do kind of a thing and I, and I realized looking back now it was at that very moment that he passed on the torch and three days later he was gone oh I'm sorry to hear that yeah. but as a father I can understand it's like follow your passion mm-hmm. it just it, you know yeah it'll fill, fill your dad's heart as much as yours so. I, I was my third third show in to my first tour oh my gosh yeah. how long was the tour for, um, for you guys at that time really remember specifically but um but we would we did the states we did the u.s now what was the context they were just coming off of at the drive-in which was a phenomenally i wouldn't say successful in terms of monetary but like everybody knew them mm-hmm. they came out you know a punch to the face is yeah, <laughs> best yeah. i would describe it but very well known very well respected so what was the context of the mars volta like i would assume you probably got a very great reception hitting the road getting crowds right out of the bat. Yeah, they had a built-in following from from what they had done at the drive-in. And and, uh, I think when word broke that they were starting a a new band, there was, um, yeah, the the crowds were there. The people were were ready for it. They wanted to hear what these guys were doing. And was this a club tour, or was it more of a... It was mostly clubs, yeah. um, Which hollow 
Stadium's theaters. It was clubs, yeah. Um, and also, given their popularity, were you touring on an EP or uh, you know, kind of the promise of something to come, or where were you in the? We had done a bunch of demos that would later become uh, some stuff that was on their first record, but at the time we uh, had an EP. You did not. Did you end up contributing to the, the first album? There were a couple songs that I that I had written with the guys that um, I, I, when I was with the band it was it was that collaborative effort right like we came in um, it was right before there was even a name for the band they were coming off the at the drive-in and just put this band together I got a call from my friend Ike who I'd known since high school I was in the arts high school with Ike's little brother Brandon who's also a bass player and uh, they just put this band together and we just hit the ground running and we're just writing songs, coming up with the, sitting on the living room floor, coming up with band names, and um, it was very much um, eat, eat, sleep, and breathe the band right. kind of a setting. Which at that age is probably... Oh my God, probably, it was like the most incredible thing I'd ever experienced, especially coming out of, I mean, I played in a lot of bands before, but I, this was finally like, we're going to record, we're going to go on tour, this is, these guys had already done this all along. All, all this stuff mm -hmm. and um, and I'm going like I don't have to go to class anymore and I'm taking all this stuff that I'd learned and all these rules and, and in a way just kind of throwing it out the window I mean it's all still there but it's like I don't have to I don't have to follow counterpoint rules or anything anymore you know it's like it's just pure creation and inspiration and it was the, the most incredible feeling Was there anything that surprised you in your first experience on the road that like hmm, I didn't consider this or you know I never talks about this or positive or negative um you know i didn't have any expectations i think i just was so excited to be there that i was excited about any and all of it and so this is your first time away from kind of the uh, the west coast um no it wasn't my first time away from the west coast but it was my first time away from the west coast during the fall so i actually experienced my first autumn because I saw like yellow. Orange, Yo, I, was, I was so starstruck because I grew up in LA, right, where there isn't that much of a seasonal change, and I'm on the East Coast, and and I'm we're in this little college town, and the trees are all change colors, and this, it's all stone buildings, and I'm like, oh my god, this is just like the movies. I was totally starstruck for for fall. It was amazing, amazing feeling. I remember the way that moment feels. It was funny. glorious. That's funny. I mean, as someone from the Northeast, it's like you take advantage of it. But we always like, God, it's such a, it's the best season. It's always the shortest season. So. Mm -hmm. I love autumn. It's my favorite. So if everything, it sounds, I, I never, you know, found anything. But why, what happened to, why, why did you not pursue it further? Like, why weren't you part of this, you know, the first full length? Um, you know, I just think that, I mean, there was a lot going My dad had died during that time, so right, I never right. got to grieve, really. I was just kind of hit the ground running. And, um, you know, sometimes things do. It just wasn't working out, and um, it was time for everyone to move on from, from that. Did you make money on the tour? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I can, a little I, bit. Funny, I, and I, I asked this in because, I, you know, again, it's a different thing because you're, you're touring with a, a band that had a, you know, a, a legacy to it. Mm -hmm. You know, so many people... Or hand to mouth at that point. So I'm not looking for a monetary yeah. figure, but how did you feel? Did you come home and think like, "Hey, I'm, I'm making a living. Well, I got a little money in my pocket." There was a legacy um, that they had, but they were also, in a way, starting all over again. Right. So we were right. They were. They had gotten to a point with their other band, and um, with this band, they were back in a um, in smaller clubs, and we were sleeping on floors, 
and going to you know fast food drive at the not the drive-in drive-throughs. We were going through drive-throughs, and um, that's kind of how, how we were doing it. And uh, but I did, yeah. I mean, I, I made some money, and I was in. I think I I remember being in charge of um, like PDs. I think, which was a really cool feeling because this was like, oh wow, this is. Um, a setting where the band is seen as a business, right? You're taking in money and you're distributing the money to feed everybody. So it was a really cool experience to be in a setting like that as well. Whereas in the past, I was just playing in clubs and we were lucky to get drink tickets. Um, well, we actually, like Coca-Cola's, right? Because we weren't even old enough to drink. But um, this was the first time where I was actually, we were, ha- I was experiencing handling money in a band setting. Right. So that was cool. Did that carry over into anything else you've done since then? As far as me, me being the treasurer? You, you being, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, either the treasurer or just, you know, having a, you know, still being forced to play a larger role in the band than the, than the musician. You know, it's funny because after that, um, when finances came to play, I was mostly a hired gun. So that was all taken care of by someone else. And did your dad ever give you advice in terms of money? In the, in the context of music? Not really. Not that I remember. Always get a lyric in there. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I not that I remember. I mean, in dad bands, those guys, I mean, all their rights and royalties and everything, I mean, back then they are kind of all screwed. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, we still get crea- – one thing we do get is creation, creation royalties. He was able to sort that out. He followed up on all that like in the 90s. I was like, hey guys, I never got paid for this stuff I did in the 60s with the creation. So followed up with that and um, figured something out there, which is good. But he had to go dig for it. Oh, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So after after Mars, was the next kind of big thing um, playing with Tim? Is it Burgess? Yeah, Tim Burgess. Yep, from Charlton's. Yeah. Um, that was my first bus tour. And that I was kind <laughs> of like my stepping stones, right? And... Um, that was such a blast because we went over to the UK, and because Tim had such a huge following with the Charlatans, we were we did two shows opening up for the Rolling Stones. I mean, my first arena gig ever was opening for the Stones. Is that at Wembley? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Now, was a gig like that intimidating for you, or is it just another gig? And it was a thrill. Okay, that's good. I mean, it's only half full when we were playing because everyone's kind of waiting for the Stones, you know, but. Even then, it was just like just the feeling of being on that on that big stage and being in that arena setting was. I just that was when I was like, I made it. This is it. I'm on a bus and I'm playing in, in an arena. I can die and I can die today. And are any of your dad's contemporaries attending the show or backstage? Right? I know Ron. Ron Woods, he was there, and it's actually funny. I saw him at Soundcheck, and he's he's kind of like, hey, nice one, huh? Like full circle moment. <laughs> it was really really cool. That was very funny. cool. Gosh, yeah. how bizarre. What what came after that? After that, um, I toured with Veruca Salt. And was there, like, what's happening between gigs? Are you, you know, are you kind of hustling a bit or, or just, you know, word of mouth is out there that, you know, you're off tour with Tim? and Between gigs, um, I'm playing in my own bands. I've always, I've always got an original project going. Um, since high school, I've always had some sort of original project or band that I'm doing at home. It's based in L.A., writing, recording, playing shows. So I'm always doing that. Um, and also at the family pub. I mean, I as soon as my sisters and I were old enough to legally work, <laughs> or we were put on the payroll, 
um, which is 16 in California. Okay. So from the age of 16, um, I'm working at the restaurant. So whenever I'm home, I'm I'm at that point I'd be behind the bar, I was bartending, bar managing. So I'm behind the bar, slinging drinks when I'm not on the road. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, how long How long would these stints be? Like how Like for instance, how long was it between you know Tim and Baruch and Saul? That was probably about a year. Okay. A year and a half, something like that. So I'm happy as a clam, playing shows at home and and working at the bar. I was in a relationship at the time, so being home was home. was nice. Yeah. And I also want to go back to you being a, you know a writer and, and doing your own thing whenever you're home. Is that just you need to do that because you know when you're you know you're touring with Cher and Pink and all these you know when you're a hired gun you're not as creative as you can be or there's not an outlet. So is that an important thing for you is always to have your, you know, flex that muscle to be a songwriter, to be a lyricist, to be an arranger? Yeah, absolutely, because um, it's always been inside. You know, I... I, I where the passion is. Yeah, I mean, as well as being a bass player and being sure. a side person, I absolutely love that. It's all just a different facet of, of what I do and who I am. And um, there's always songs in my head and um, to be able to to get those out is important to me. Whether anyone hears them or not, I don't know. <laughs> it's not really the, the, the point so much nowadays, but um, just to have that outlet is, is really important. Do you put work on SoundCloud or anything like that? So, interestingly, um, I've always just been in a band setting and been in a collaborative collaborative realm, and it's I'm just starting to take those that experience of me, you know, the kid that's writing songs on her bedroom floor like I'm still that person but I'm finally at the point where I'm comfortable enough to put those ideas out there um, and not have a buffer of other people play helping mold that so I am actually just put an EP together oh, great. and I'm probably going to be putting it out within the next few months right. putting it out there that, now where, where, you gonna, <laughs> where what, what avenue is going to be it's gonna be on iTunes and yes. Spotify and yeah. so you can get the regular yeah distribution yeah is that any different? I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump the line here. But is that any Telstar? Is that an ongoing project of yours, or is that was a project that was set between you know around I guess the 2011? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Telstar was a band that I was doing when the guys were living in LA. But they um, between all of us shooting out on different tours, and the two guys, Chris and Stu, moving to Joshua Tree, that was put on hiatus. But I worked with those guys on my new EP. I went out to Chris's studio and Joshua Tree and Stu played drums on it. So it's like a, a Telstar production in a way, but they're my <laughs> songs and they're helping me really realize my dream, which is great because I know the guys, we've worked together, so um, and I'm comfortable with them. So they're helping me with my project, like my solo thing, to help right. me take flight with, oh, that's with great. it. Yeah. That's fantastic. So getting back to Veruca Salt, that was Australia, did you say? Yes. Is that your first time that over there? That was my first time there. That's cool. It's awesome. And I remember going to see Veruca Salt when I was in high school. So that was a really cool full circle moment. Where are they in their career then? Um, where were they then? Yeah. I mean, were they, I'm trying to think what their peak peak was. Their peak was probably 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Late 90s. So are they, are they big in Australia? <laughs> yeah, at that point. Um, so I think there were some band, or there were some band member changes. And um, Nina and Louise had parted ways and Louise was keeping Veruca Salt going so I stepped in as the female vocal um, okay I read that that was one of your first singing singing gigs yeah that was one of the first times that I actually really dug in and sat there with Louise and did worked on harmonies and um, it was a huge stepping stone for me was that a natural thing for you 
Um, I mean, were you always confident in your voice? I was never confident in my voice. And that was, um, I think that was part of the issue. And having Louise there helping coach me and help pull it out of me and help with these parts, I got to a place where I was like, oh, I can do this. I just need to work at it. And especially um, learning the bass lines at the same time because the bass lines I was kind of doing two things at once because the bass lines were written by someone who was just playing bass and and the vocal parts was was um, by a guitar player so I'm melding these really cool bass lines together and figuring out how to sing at the same time so it was a really cool brain workout <laughs> it's great sounds hard it was awesome it's great and it feels so good when you sit there and now do you like to be challenged like that I do that's great yeah and it makes me feel good when I there's a time when you're like, oh, I can't do that, but that's the wrong thing to say. You say, I can do that, and you just sit there and do it until you do it, until you make it happen. And those moments when you have that breakthrough, I mean, that's what that's what it's all about. And you just keep keep expanding, keep learning. I mean, that's that's huge for me. Yeah. Um, was it? Uh, I have a note on Rockstar in Excess. Was oh. that around that time? Yeah. So that was in. <laughs> what has it been in 2005? Yeah. Okay. That was in 05. And, and that was for the house band? I auditioned to be in the house band. Okay. Were you a fan of NXS? Um, I liked them. Yeah, I mean, I knew them from growing up in the 80s and having them uh, listening to songs on the radio and stuff. So I knew of them for sure. And how did that come about? Was that an open call or was that through a connection? That was through um, actually a guy named Barry Squire in L.A., who I'm sure a lot of people listening to this might know of him. I never heard of him. Mark <laughs> mentioned him. He's like the best. He, he, He's like the one guy in this world that puts bands together. Exactly. That's funny. I got to Google him. Yeah. So he was the guy who would call and say, so-and-so needs a bass player. There's an audition next week. So he would put musicians together. What's his background? What's his... Like, I believe he's a drummer. Just been in the business forever. Been in the business everybody. forever. I think he worked at a label um, and worked... From what I remember, he worked at a label trying to get musicians for acts on the label okay. type of thing. Um so yeah, he, I got the call through him, and uh, amongst uh, millions of other auditions that I had done through him too. But this one, I tried out. I got a couple callbacks, and it's funny because when you're going into auditions like that, it's not just the music side of it, right? It's there's this casting side of it as well because it's television. Right. And I had my um, I had dark hair at the time, and the casting, the music side was great. They we got along great, but then the casting woman came up to me and said, "Hmm." I don't know. Have you ever been a blonde? <laughs> Had you been at that point? No, no, I had. And my response was like, well, I can be. Sure. And it's funny now because I'm blonde now. But at the time, it was like the, the whole look was um, they were after some, some, something else, I guess. So I didn't, I didn't get the gig for whatever reason. Um, and that's when the MD on that um, was the same MD that works with Pink. And so that's how Pink came to be? I got a call like a couple years later. And it was like, hey. Had you had never heard from this guy in between? Like, I actually was it did. two years and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember you from two years ago. Or was so it? I did hear from him a year later. And he said, hey, remember me from the audition? I remember you. There's an artist that might need uh, that might need a bass player, but it might not happen yet, so I can't say who it is. Never got a call back. I was like, okay, I guess that didn't happen. A year later from that, I got another call from him and said, okay, it's happening this time. The artist is pink. Do you want to try out? Uh, I said, yeah. So it was funny because at that time when I didn't get the audition, I'm thinking like, oh, man, that was my big break. That could have been such Did a great opportunity. Did you find out it was pink by the time of the first audition? No. I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. It's like you think, I'm thinking <laughs> like, like you this, didn't is, get it, this is it. Way, it was pink. 
Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, the, the TV audition I didn't get. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, the TV audition I didn't get. But the MD, I mean, I'm thinking that was the worst that's thing right. ever. But that's how the MD came to know right. me. And he remembered me for a different situation, which ended up working out. And that's actually how Justin Derrico got um, the pink gig, too. Same he thing. auditioned for Rockstar in excess. Didn't get Rockstar in excess, but the MD remembered Justin and, and had him come out when they needed uh, someone for pink. Gosh, that's funny. Now, that leads me to confess I think I have false information, but I read somewhere where you only had a couple days to learn pink set. Yes, so when I got the call, when it was actually really happening and they decided they were going to make the change, I um, got the call and there, were only, there was only a few days. It was basically like... Um, you got the gig, here's four albums worth of material, pack for three months, we'll see you in three days. <laughs> like, total trial by fire. I also heard that once you got to sit in with the band, the stuff you learned on whatever CD or MP3, yeah. the arrangements were slightly They're different. different. Yeah, they, get, they <laughs> sent me like the CDs, right? So I'm learning the album arrangements, and they should have been sending me the live arrangements, because that's... You know, and so I get there, I learn all this stuff, and I'm like, "Hey, wait, this isn't what this isn't what you guys sent me." And so I'm relearning uh, all the arrangements for a lot of the stuff. You know, I mean, I'm not huge things. It's like extend the outro yeah. here, blah blah. But my brain's already so like exploding from all the information overload, um, and and I didn't even meet her until soundcheck before the first gig. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah that's the next crazy. day. How was the first gig? Oh my God, it was insane. Um, it was Malhead Castle in Ireland and I met her at Soundcheck she gave me a big hug and said welcome to the family and it was an incredible experience because it was at that point that I really realized who she was um, was seeing her at a concert and there's a, there were a couple songs where like an acoustic section where I sit out so I'm sitting on the side of the stage just watching this woman perform and and just create this atmosphere with this audience and the audience is in tears and I'm in tears and it was incredible and it was at that moment that I was like oh my god this is I'm so fortunate to be here right now because this is this is this is like an unrivaled situation this person with this with this person in the band was just so amazing and as people and as musicians and it was just really um, something that I hadn't experienced before now it's uh, 11, 12 years now? Since um, it's it's going to be 12 years. And it's well known. I mean, I've read it in the press and it's been reiterated, you know, with my talk with Mark, but she really fosters a very family like community and, you know, looks after everybody. Did you experience that prior or since? Um, I, ha I had to an extent, but this is at a whole different level. I mean, this is my, my 12th year in the band and I'm one of the newest members still. I mean, this is just something that's so special in this industry, and um, I know it exists, but it's not everywhere. It's not common, and it's we're really lucky when we find it. And her, like, has it been like three major tours you've done together? Uh, let's see. I started with her in 2007. Yeah, I've done the end of that tour, Funhouse, two, three. This, I guess, would be my my fourth. So when you say end of that tour, were you a mid-tour kind of? Yeah, there was there was the I'm Not Dead tour, and when I came in, we were doing the tail end festivals. So there was I'm Not Dead, then there was Fun House, then there was the Summer Carnivals in 2010, um, Truth About Love, 2012, 2013, and then here we are. 
I have in 2014 your signature precision Fender bass came mm-hmm. out, and you were the first female to have that honor. Bestowed? To have a bass with Fender, oh, apparently great. so. Yeah, that's 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 what they. Now, how did that like. relationship? Obviously, your player and you know it probably goes all the way. Was your dad a Fender guy? Yes. Take me through that a little bit. How does that? You know, you you, you become a Fender artist, and then you know talk of having your own bass comes comes forth and. It really sparked when Mark and I, we did a rhythm section tour for Fender because Mark was, his drum company used to be um, owned by Fender. And um, so Fender hired us to do a rhythm section tour because Mark and I do rhythm section clinics. So we went over to Europe and did a rhythm section tour over there for Fender. So we met all the Fender, um, Fender Germany guys, Fender UK, Fender Germany, but it was really the Fender Germany guys that we were, uh, we did Music Massa which is a big show, like a NAMM show, okay. but over, but over in, in Dusseldorf in Germany. Or, sorry, in Frankfurt, actually. It's in Frankfurt. Fender Germany was in Dusseldorf. Um, and so we went over there, and we went by the Fender booth, and we were looking at all the, all the cool signature bases. One of the guys said, hey, you should have one. And I was like, yeah, sure, that'd be great, not thinking anything would actually ever happen. And they said, no, you really, you should have one of these. And that's what sparked the idea. And... What's kind of the process that goes into that? Do you sit down with them and take them through kind of your vision of what you like and what you like to play and what you like the, you know, the tone to be? And yeah, I just sort of created my ideal my ideal bass, which was a conglomeration of all the basses that I played, um, kind of an ode to my first bass that I ever that I ever got, an ode to the, the vintage stuff that I love that, that's my dad's, and um, just created this, this scenario that would just to be the ultimate for me so I went to the custom shop and talked to those guys over there in Corona California and they they created a prototype for me and it went from there and now it's out it's out in the world it's out in the world yeah. now is this something just you get a, a royalty so to speak like for every base sold or do you kind of cut a deal from the top just say here's you know here's a flat fee wish us luck um, I was getting royalty okay yeah that's great that's mm-hmm. interesting Interesting to hear. Yeah. All right. We're almost. We're almost to. to we're almost to now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess one thing I, I like to ask too is just you know kind of these um, supplementary income uh, opportunities. Do you do uh, sessions for advertising or jingles or movie soundtracks or scoring? Do you ever get involved in any? I soundtrack? haven't, but I'm so open to that. I mean, I know a lot of my friends do, and that just sounds like a, a really fun, fun thing to do. Um, I'd love to explore that all right yeah if you're listening out there Madison Avenue anybody somebody I know some some people hey Uh, share 2014 Mm -hmm. big tour yeah were you playing with was Mark playing yes so Mark and I we had just finished up from uh, the pink tour and two weeks later we're the two of us are on share and Stacy actually one of our singers as well we just shifted over and they share do they share the same management or some sort of same manager TV show you were on Transparency. Oh, any, Transparent. Trans- yes. I'm sorry, Transparent. Yeah. With the, uh, as a, uh, Tambor was the name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And were you in a? Was the setting you were in a band with the Indigo Girls? Yes. Is that your your role? Yes. It was a festival. It was a scene that we were at like a this big hippie festival, and um, and the Indigo Girls were playing, and so I'm the bass player in the band with How the did Indigo that come Girls. To be? Through my friend who, um, she's actually the drummer in that scene. She's playing drums, and she um, knew 
I believe, music supervisor or someone that was working on the show who needed um, who needed a couple people to be in the band. So she said, hey, I know somebody. She called me up and spent the day on set. Have you done anything else like that? I've done some TV stuff, little bits and bobs here and there. So do you, are you sad? Music videos. Sad? I'm not... <laughs> I am not SAG, but I'd like to be. I've heard I've heard from other artists in the past that that's well-paying mm-hmm. I've heard the same. This TV, but you've done it, so is it true? <laughs> it is very well-paying, yes, yes. And I would love to do more. <laughs> Again. Putting that out there. Out there. <laughs> um, and then finally, before I get, I get to this, uh, the final five, as I call it, it's the same five questions. But before we get there, can you tell me a little bit about the Rockers Collective? Mm-hmm. So Mark had this great idea where tours end and people are home for a bit and he had this idea where when people aren't on tour or busy doing other things they can um it's just kind of it's a, it's a pool of musicians basically that will um and if a client like a corporation or someone needs a band for their event they can put together this all-star group of musicians it might be foreigners keyboard player pink drummer um you know so-and-so singer and just put together this this all-star band to um Created a night for. Well, it's great. How long has that been? How long? How it's long been a few you, years now. It's been a you while. Been there from the inception. Yeah, I started with the very first, uh, the very first shows, the, the showcases. And these are these like, I, I know you mentioned the word corporate. Is it mostly corporate gigs where you know Microsoft has a big event to play it? Yeah, they have the budget for for that, and I think for for people to take the time to learn all the music and take take the time out of whatever else they're doing. Um, you know, for the most part, yeah, it's pretty set good. List? Is that part of the draw too? Yeah, they can cater to their their crowd if they want, like a disco night. Then it'll be a disco thing, or if it's some other theme, they can cater to whatever they want. Really. Have you gone anywhere? Exotic is the wrong, wrong word, but you travel well with this. Well, I mean, so it's put you somewhere. It's so or? funny because Mark and I, who uh, if we're around, we'll, we'll we'll do it. We're the um, sort of the part of the core band. But interesting enough, when it's like when they go to Cabo, we're always on on the road. So it's like this funny, it's this it's this funny thing. But we've we've done some gigs. We did uh, Texas, Vegas, stuff in LA, um, and there's always cool stuff coming up. But if we're around, we'll do it. But we're kind of out of town. We just seem to be busy for the exotic ones. It's okay, all good. Let's uh, let's let's turn you loose after these last five. Sure. So question number one. This is the one I'm. I alluded to earlier in the interview because I want to see what your most prized possession is. But imagine your house is on fire and every human is out safe and animal is safe. What would you go back and save? Man, I actually just had a real time. Oh, you're in LA. Thing. I'm sorry. It's funny. I ask this question to a lot of LA musicians. Yeah, I just you know my, went through this. My house was on fire. I just went through this. Yeah, we had a, a, a fire breakout not far from where I live. So I had this, these very thoughts. And. Um, it's a tough one. I mean, I would love to take. I have an up, my dad's upright bass that was made in the 1860s, oh my which is just <laughs> it's heavy to incredible. Pull out. <laughs> but I'm thinking, like, how the hell do I get that out uh, with other stuff? You know, that's like that's my one thing that I can take, right? Um, so, I, I mean, definitely my 60s stuff. I would say my first bass, definitely. Yeah, I mean, those are the things that come to mind. Uh, question number two is if Rocketomics was successful enough to give you a check for a million dollars to then give to one charity, which one charity do you donate to? Ooh. You know, I would say, um, I mean, there's so many incredible charities out there, but I would say music in schools. Okay. Great. Um, because I know 
how powerful that is for children and for kids to have an outlet. I was lucky to have um, music in second grade, and I remember those moments. Uh, question three is, what would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates? <sighs> oh, my gosh. You can take it down. Question. This is where I edit the thing. It's usually a long pause. And yeah. <laughs> hmm. I have to think about that. Definitely not Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> I hope nobody says it is. The, the, the next question might have that might be an answer or something. Oh, man. I want to say Led Zeppelin, though. You know, I'm thinking Ramble On. Hey, that's good. Yeah. Keep it moving. Ramble keep On. Going. Keep it keep it rambling ramble up there. Ramble On to the afterlife. Exactly. All right, I like it. Question four is the reverse of that. What's stuck on repeat in hell? Ooh. Wild thing. <laughs> you make my heart sing. <laughs> okay. Enough said. And finally, question five is, uh, what's the best live music experience you've witnessed as a fan? I would say Paul McCartney. Where and when? I would, I've seen him a couple times now. I saw him at... Um, LA uh, at Dodger Stadium in LA and then I saw him again at Summerfest in Milwaukee and at both times it's like I laughed I cried it was it was the full experience and it was I was just fully immersed in the in the whole thing it's it's and just who he is as a person and how he comes off to the crowd and there's no breaks you know he's up there for the full couple hours and the band's just, just like just on fire and the whole experience is otherworldly. Have you had the opportunity to meet him? I have. Yeah, I met him at, we played Isle of Wight with him, actually. Um, and I met him backstage, and someone said I was a bass player, and he he looks at me, and he motions with his hands a bass, and he goes, and just sings this bass line to me, air, playing air bass, and he's like, those bass players are going to stick together. <laughs> It was perfect. That is perfect. I mean, that really is priceless. It. I feel like only you can, only you can own that moment. You know? Yeah. That's it, fantastic. It's perfect. Cool thing. Thank you for sharing that, with and thank you for sharing everything. Yes. Pleasure meeting you. Yeah. Tonight. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Eva Gardner, for coming on the podcast. She was so responsive and accommodating to my interview request. That was very much appreciated, so thank you, thank you, thank you, Eva. Check out her website at evagardner.com where you can hear some of her solo work and side projects, and check out her art and photography. She also posts great tour videos and images on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so follow her there. To keep up with the podcast, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and do us a huge favor and leave us a rating on iTunes. All right, we'll be back next week with our first repeat guest. So there's a list of uh, 48, 49 people that that could be. Okay, episode 52 of the Rockonomics podcast with Eva Gardner has concluded its broadcast. Good night, Cleveland. Good night.